Our reading is from James chapter 4. I'll begin in verse 7. Therefore submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you would speak to us through your word, that you would lead us to repentance, to obedience. Father, that you would help us to submit ourselves to you, to live for your glory, that in our humility you would lift us up and exalt us. Father, would you do these things for us and in us? This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. My guess is that none of us really like going to the doctor's office, right? Uh, no offense to you doctors here. <laughs> uh, it's just that sometimes doctors are the bearers of bad news. Uh, some of you have had that experience of hearing hard things in a doctor's office. And yet, as hard as it was, you knew that it was for your good, that these were things that you needed to know. What the doctor was telling you, as difficult as it might be to hear, still something you needed to know. Well, think of James in this part of his letter as a physician. We're going to hear from Dr. James this morning. Uh, Dr. James has identified symptoms of a disease in the church community that he is writing to. There are fights and there are quarrels. It's as if the body is attacking itself. The church is set against itself. Christians have become enemies of one another. The church has become its own worst enemy. This infighting is the symptom that Dr. James has identified. And now Dr. James is going to give his diagnosis. And we started to look at this last week, this disease uh, that James has identified, the disease underlying these symptoms is worldliness. It is love with the, for the world or friendship with the world. But in addition to worldliness, there are other comorbidities that the patient has. In addition to worldliness, there is pride, there is coveting, there is a distorted prayer life or even prayerlessness, there is an unhealthy fixation on the wrong kinds of pleasures. Dr. James is showing how and why churches have become sick and unhealthy. But now James is going to give us a remedy. And we started to to talk about this last week. We touched on it, but we're going to continue it today. Dr. James here steps into his laboratory and he concocts a cure for his sick patient. Uh, Maybe he's not just a doctor, he's also a pharmacist. And You could say, really, in a sense, he's not just giving a cure for the disease he has identified, but a vaccine that will keep the disease away, that will prevent future illness. So what is this cure according to the good doctor, the apostolic doctor? Well, in a word, it is grace. It is the grace of God, the grace God gives to the humble. God's grace is the medicine that cures. It is a cure-all. You know, we have all kinds of medicines making all kinds of promises about what they can fix, what they can cure. Well, here is a medicine that truly can cure us of anything that ails us. 
Now understand what grace is. What does James mean when he speaks of grace? All throughout the New Testament, that word grace is shorthand. It's shorthand for the work of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of Christ for us and the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And so James is saying, if you want to be healed, he says those who humble themselves before the Father will receive grace in the form of the Son and the Spirit. And the Son and the Spirit will come into your life and will bring healing. But we also see in this section, those who receive the Son and the Spirit must act on what they have been given. Patients do not get well unless they follow doctor's orders. And so here it is. Here is Dr. James prescribing his rehabilitation program, his recovery program for the patient. James is saying, if if you want to have a full recovery, this is the prescription you must follow. And so what James does for us in verses 7 through 10 is he gives us a tenfold prescription to restore the church's health, to restore us to unity and faithfulness, to restore unity and faithfulness in the church community. These are ten commands here in these uh, in these three verses. We have ten commands. You could call this the ten commandments according to James. If the church is going to be healthy, This is the pattern of life. This is the rehabilitation program we must follow. Uh, These ten steps not only cure the symptoms, but again, they protect against any future infection as well. Think of these three verses as the Ten Commandments according to James. But there's another way to look at this. We, We could approach this from another angle. What James here is prescribing, if you take these Ten Commandments together, what James is prescribing is what we Christians call repentance. That's really what James is prescribing, if you wanted to boil it down. It is repentance. This is a comprehensive description. It is a highly detailed and highly practical description of what repentance looks like. And remember, repentance is not just a one-time act for the Christian. It is an ongoing act. It is a way of life for the Christian. The first of Martin Luther's famous 95 theses stated, when the Lord Jesus Christ said to repent, he willed that the entire life of a believer be one of repentance. The whole of the Christian life is to be a life of repentance. So James gives us here a description of the kind of repentance that leads to salvation, the kind of repentance that leads to eternal life. Just as you might say in chapter 2, he describes the kind of faith that leads to final salvation. Here's the kind of repentance that leads to final salvation. What James does for us here in verses 7 to 10 is give us a rapid-fire, tenfold summary of the Christian life. And there are a lot of places in Scripture where we are given ethical summaries of what God requires of us, where the whole will of God for our lives is boiled down to just a few commandments. Uh, You had the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. That's probably the most famous summary of what God requires of us. Micah 6.8 is another famous summary of what God uh, requires of us. The uh, verse there reads, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you has been shown to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So there's a threefold summary of what the Christian life is about. Justice, mercy, and humility. Or we might think of how Jesus summarized the whole ethical requirement of the Christian life. 
really a twofold command, the, the two great commandments, to love God and to love neighbor. Or we might even look at Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 who gives us one command to really sum it all up, to glorify God. That's the one rule for lot, for all of life, to glorify God. So the scripture gives us different summaries of what God requires of us. James 4, 7 to 10 is another such summary, a three-verse summary of the Christian way of life given to us in 10 commands, 10 imperatives, 10 commandments were given here. Look at how it begins in verse 7, therefore. James starts off with therefore. That means what he's going to describe here is unpacking the principle he's just stated in verse 6. So what is that? Well, because God is a God who resists proud people and who gives saving grace to humble people, therefore, James says, this is how you ought to live. In other words, if the grace of God is being shown to you, if you have humbled yourself, this is what your life is going to look like. If you have humbled yourself and received grace from the Father, through the Son, and by His Spirit, this is the shape your life will take. Your life will be poured into the mold or into the pattern described here by these ten imperatives. So let's look at this list. What does James actually command? These ten commandments according to James. Well, first in verse 7, he says, submit to God. Now, at the beginning of this chapter, we saw James pull back the curtain on the human heart, as it were. He shows us one reason many Christians fight with each other is our out-of-control desires. He says that's really the source of this problem, this fighting and division in the church. It's your unchecked wanting. It's these self-centered desires. And so you can look at the problem this way. The problem is we are in submission to those desires rather than God. We have submitted ourselves to these out-of-control desires. Our out-of-control desires control us. Those desires enslave us. And those are the desires that lead to adultery and to murder, to division, to worldliness, all those other things that James describes. And so what is the solution? Well, James says it starts with this. Instead of submitting to those desires, you submit to God. Instead of submitting to the world, you submit to God. Instead of letting your desires control you, you let God, you let God's word control you. Submit to God. Surrender to God. Switch your allegiance from the world to Jesus. So you no longer crave the world's acceptance. Instead, what is most important to you is Jesus' approval. Recenter your life so you are no longer at the center of it, but so Jesus is central. All of our problems stem, it's really this simple, you could say all of our problems stem from a refusal to submit to God. Unrighteous anger stems from not submitting our desires and emotions to God. Envy and covetousness arise from submitting to evil desires rather than submitting to God's plan for our lives. If you submit to God's plan for your life, then you can experience humility. But if you don't, if you submit yourself to these out-of-control desires, you're going to always be discontent. You're going to be full of covetousness and envy. Gore Vidal once said, whenever one of my friends succeeds, something in me dies. That's envy. That kind of envy comes from submitting to the self rather than submitting to God. 
if there's going to be peace in the church, it starts with our mutual submission to God. It starts with humbly submitting ourselves to our Creator. Second command, verse 7, again, second command, resist the devil and he will flee from you. For James, there is not only a war within against our own desires, there's not only a war with the world, with worldliness, there is a spiritual battle with Satan as well. We fight against the flesh, those out-of-control desires, we fight against the world, the, the evil fallen world system, but we also have to fight against the devil, the world, the flesh, and the devil, this triad of enemies that we as Christians face. James is telling us, look, you are in a fight with the devil. You're in the fight of your life, the fight for your life, and you're fighting against the devil. But because God has given us his grace, because God has given us his son and his spirit, when we resist Satan, Satan must flee from us. When we resist him, he is powerless against us. When you fight, he is put to flight. When you fight against the devil, he is put to flight. James says we should fight against the devil. Instead of fighting with each other, we should be fighting the devil. That's really his point here. Instead of fighting with one another, we should be fighting against Satan. Now his point here is that, you know, very clearly, you don't need to fear Satan. Indeed, if anything, Satan fears you. At the same time, James would tell us, do not trivialize Satan. So don't go to extremes. There are some people who obsess over Satan. There are some people who trivialize him or deny his existence altogether. James won't have it either way. For James, Satan is real. There is a real uh, satanic force at work in the world. Fallen angels, uh, these demonic powers that are at work in the world. But his point is Satan no longer, while he still has power, he no longer has power over us. Yes, he can still tempt and deceive, but every Christian has the power to resist him. Now, how do you do this? How do you resist the devil? Well, you resist the devil the same way Jesus resisted the devil. What did Jesus do when the devil attacked him and tempted him in the wilderness? He reached for the sword of the spirit, which is God's word. And this is how we resist the devil as well. Jesus overcame Satan's temptations, and we can too. Because Jesus is with us and because he has given us his word. Once Jesus resisted the devil, what happened? The devil had to flee. And it's that account in Matthew chapter 4 that really stands behind James' instructions here and his promise. His promise of victory over the devil. Scripture teaches us quite a bit about Satan and his ways and his wiles. You know, the best rule of of warfare when you're going in to, to fight a battle is know your enemy. Know the enemy. And Scripture teaches us quite a bit about how Satan tempts, how he misleads. And so we must use Scripture to equip ourselves, to arm ourselves against him. We can conquer Satan just as Jesus did if we too will rely on the word of God. Satan, along with the world and the flesh, this triad of enemies, we can defeat them all. If we will reach for God's word and use God's word as our weapon. And remember here, the main temptation, this is what we learned from Scripture, the main temptation Satan brings against us is the very temptation Jesus faced. It is to abandon the way of the cross, 
to seize glory for ourselves without having to suffer, to take a shortcut to glory, as it were. That was the temptation for Jesus. That's always Satan's strategy. So think about Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus announced that he would go to Jerusalem and be crucified. Peter rebuked him because he did not think the Messiah could or would suffer. But how did Jesus respond? He said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're thinking like Satan, not like a a, a member of God's kingdom should think. You're thinking satanic thoughts. Peter had adopted a satanic way of thinking, the wisdom that comes from below. What does Jesus say to his followers? Deny yourself. You've got to lose your life to find it. That's real wisdom. That's true wisdom. Satan says, fulfill yourself. Live for yourself. Seek what you want for yourself. Avoid suffering. Seek your own comfort. Seek your own glory. That's how Satan tells us to live. That's satanic wisdom. And of course, this is exactly the temptation that these Jewish Christians James is writing to were facing. Should they strike back against their persecutors? They're being persecuted for the sake of the gospel. Should they fight back? Should they attack their enemies, their oppressors? Or should they be willing to suffer for the sake of Christ, suffer patiently for the sake of the gospel? James answers that question here. Understand how Satan tempts us. He tempts us to be self-centered, to live for ourselves, to take matters into your own hands rather than trusting God to take care of us, to avoid suffering at all costs, to seek our own glory. That's Satan's strategy against you. Guard yourself against it. And when you resist him with the word of God, he must flee from you even as he fled from Jesus. Third command, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Talked about this a little bit a few weeks ago. I kind of jumped ahead in this passage and talked about this a little bit. Remember, this is liturgical language. This uh, language of drawing near, this is the Bible's way of describing corporate worship and prayer, most especially. Drawing near means going to church. Means gathering with God's people for worship. This is how you draw near. In the Old Covenant, drawing near was the language used for going to tabernacle or to the temple and then taking your sacrifice to the altar. That's how you would draw near. For us, it means gathering together to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. When we draw near to God, he draws near to us. It's interesting, the early Christian martyr Ignatius wrote to the church in Antioch. He said, when you come together... The power of Satan is destroyed and his destructive force is annihilated by the unity of your faith. It's as if Ignatius is putting these two commandments of of James that are right next to each other. He's putting them together. One of the best ways to resist the devil is to not forsake the assembling of the brethren. For when we come together and in unity offer our worship and in harmony lift our voices in praise and in prayer to God, we trample Satan under our feet. God strengthens those who draw near to him in public worship by giving us his gifts. Got the fourth and fifth commands there in verse eight. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. When the priests would draw near to God in the tabernacle or temple of the old covenant to offer sacrifice, they would wash themselves. They would wash their hands. But of course, that outward washing was to be a symbol of their way of life. That they lived clean and holy lives. It was to picture their purity. Not just be an empty ritual, but a sign of the way they lived. 
These two commands James gives here show us how God wants us to live. God is concerned with both the body and the heart, with outward action and with our desires and motivations. You could say your heart is the core of who you are. Out of the heart flow the issues of life. But at the same time, you are also your body. And your body is not just a temporary shell. What you do with your hands, with your body matters. Your body is integral to your identity. And that's why James includes both here. Clean hands and pure hearts. We're to offer the members of our bodies to God in service to his kingdom. And we're to do so with pure hearts, with undivided hearts, hearts that are not divided between God and the world or God and Satan. God wants us holy in body and soul. He wants us holy in hand and in heart. That is to say, we're to live consistently with who we say we are. So our inner life matches our outer life. That's James' point here. Clean hands. And a pure heart. It's another one of James' commands. Then in verse 9, we have commands, really 6, 7, 8, and 9. Okay, you're probably glad all these come together. We can deal with them all at once. These four imperatives are all closely linked. James says, lament, mourn, weep, and turn. Turn laughter to mourning and joy to gloom. So lament, mourn, weep. And turn. Now, this sounds pretty depressing, does it not? James is telling them to lament, to mourn, to weep, to stop laughing and, 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 and to, and to stop showing joy, to be gloomy. Well, it does sound pretty depressing, but understand what James is addressing here. His point is not that Christians can't have joy. His point is not that Christians can't laugh. We can. We should be the most joyful people of all. In fact, James opens his letter by telling us even in the midst of great trial, we can have joy. He's not against joy. But you have to understand what he's addressing here. James is speaking to people who are happy with their lives as they are, even though they are disobedient. He is speaking to people who have have become complacent in their sin. People who have become comfortable in their sin. They are enjoying their sin. They're not really bothered by their worldliness. They're not really bothered by the infighting in the church or by the coveting or by the envying. They just go with the flow. They follow their feelings. They do what they feel like doing. They think they can live it up. They can live it up right now. You know, they're living for themselves without concern or thought. They're not bothered with submitting to God. They're not bothered with resisting the devil. None of those things really are weighing on them. And so James is saying, look, your laughter will not last. Judgment is going to fall. James is warning them. James, in effect, is saying this. You can mourn over your sin today or at the last day. But if you do not mourn over your sin until the last day, it will be too late. Hope will be gone. Hope will be lost. There will be no more chance at repenting or gaining forgiveness. James is saying, you can mourn over your sin in this life and be saved from it, or you can enjoy your sin now and mourn over it for all eternity in hell. Those are your choices. Your sin will be mourned over. Will you mourn over it now? 
Or later, will you mourn over it in this life or for all eternity in the world to come? James wants his audience to repent now. He wants his audience to repent today while there is still opportunity. Mourn over your sin now, James is saying. Mourn over your sin the way David mourned over his sin in Psalm 51. That's probably the greatest, most famous example of a sinner mourning his sin. And what does David say in Psalm 51? He says, against you and you only, O Lord, have I sinned. That is godly grief, godly sorrow. The kind of sorrow that leads to real repentance. Lament your sins, James is saying. Weep over your sins. Your sins ought to break your heart. James is saying, don't laugh at your sin and enjoy your sin and think everything will be okay. No, your sin should drive you to grief, to lamentation, to weeping and to wailing. If you are a Christian, there are going to be times when you will be deeply disappointed with yourself. Times when you will be greatly frustrated at your own failings. You will be sad over your sin because you have grieved the God you love. This mourning, this weeping, this lamenting means confessing your sin. It it, it means confessing your particular sins particularly. It means grieving over your sins because you can see the sinfulness of sin, the horror and grotesqueness of our sin. How your sin not only breaks the law of God, it breaks the heart of the God who loves you. This weeping, this lamenting, this mourning... If you're really weeping and lamenting and mourning over your sin, how can you stay in that sin? This means you're going to turn from your sin. And this is really James' point, but this is what you need to understand. The only way to make progress in the Christian life is to be genuinely sorrowful over your sin. I'll say that again. The only way to make progress in the Christian life, is to be genuinely sorrowful over your sin. You cannot get anywhere if you do not leave something behind. And what you must leave behind in order to move forward in the Christian life is your sin. The sacrifices of a broken and contrite heart, God will not despise. If you weep and you lament and you're genuinely broken and sorrowful over your sin, God will accept that. He will accept your repentance. This is not just being sorrowful because you got caught. It's sorrow because you have sinned against the Lord of heaven and earth. You have sinned against your loving creator. You have sinned against your redeemer who gave his life, who shed his blood to rescue you from those very sins you're giving yourself to. See, dealing with sin doesn't come cheap. Dealing with sin is costly. Look what it costs God. Only the death of God's Son in human form could rescue us from our sin. Dealing with sin didn't come cheap to God, and it's going to cost you something as well. It's going to cost you something to turn from your sin. Far too much of the church today treats sin lightly. Far too much of the church today cries out, peace, peace, when there is no peace. How many churches today, when they gather for worship, do not have a corporate confession of sin? As if they could just 
breeze their way right into God's presence without even acknowledging that they're sinners or asking for forgiveness in some way. How many Christians in the American church today do not want to sing any of the older hymns anymore because so many of those hymns seem too somber and too sad, too depressing, precisely because so many of those older hymns force us to reckon with our sinfulness, with the depth and reality of our sinfulness. No, we just want things that are happy and cheerful all the time. We don't want to have to deal with that sin. We don't want to have to face the reality of that. How many people today make fun of all the old fire and brimstone preaching of older generations? But the reality is the joke will be on us if we do not heed the warnings of Scripture. James himself is full of fire and brimstone. If you make fun of that kind of preaching, you're making fun of James. Because really, from this point on to the end of the letter, James is coming at them. James is attacking the Christians he's writing to. He is attacking their sin. I know that the old Puritans have fallen into disfavor in a lot of ways. But this is precisely the kind of thing about the Christian life they understood so well. And the Puritans were not a a dour, somber bunch. That's the, 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 the picture that's often painted because they were real honest about sin. But actually they were exceedingly joyful and happy if you actually read the historical descriptions. But what they had that we so often lack is reverence. They feared God. And therefore, they were serious about sin. And they were serious about repenting. And I dare say modern American Christians, who seem to want everything all lighthearted and casual all the time, could stand to learn a thing or two from our Puritan forefathers in the faith. Now, do not misunderstand this. Yes, we mourn and lament our sin, and we mourn and lament our sin because we hate our sin. But do not confuse sin hatred with self-hatred. We do not hate ourselves, we hate our sin. Big difference there. Sin hatred is not the same as self-hatred. James wants us to hate our sin so we can turn from it. Further, James is not just focused here on self-deprecation. It's not just putting yourself down continually saying, oh, woe is me, I could never do anything right. No, that's not the point either. It is in confessing our sins, confessing specific sins we have committed, that we're able to turn from them. This is James' point. We confess our specific sins precisely so we can turn from them and be obedient in new ways. Turning from our sin to serve God. It's also, again, David in Psalm 51, why is he confessing his sin? What's, What's the outcome? It's so he can be restored to the joy of God's salvation. There's joy on the other side of this mourning and lamenting and weeping. The Westminster Shorter Catechism describes it really, really well. It asks the question, what is repentance unto life? And it answers this way. Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and an apprehension of God's mercy in Christ, with grief and hatred of his sin, turns from it to God with full purpose and to endeavor after new obedience. See, it's all right there. Yes, there is grief and hatred over sin. There's got to be that grief over sin, that hatred for sin. But the point is not to stay there in that state of gloom and mourning and lamenting. It's to turn from the sin that grieves us so to endeavor after new obedience. Turn from the sin 
to obedience. Turn from the sin to God. Stop submitting to those evil and crooked desires so you can submit to God. And so those who mourn in this way will be comforted. This godly sorrow that leads to repentance, those who sorrow in this way, those who mourn in this way will be comforted. They'll be comforted with the assurance of God's forgiveness, the assurance of God's love, the assurance of God's provision and protection. But understand, mourning is an essential part, a necessary part of our transformation and maturation. And so I ask, when is the last time you mourned your sins? When is the last time you came before God and lamented the ways you have displeased Him? When we come to verse 10, we really have James' summary of the summary. It's all summed up in verse 10 with the 10th command. We return to humility. Humility, what you could consider the master grace of the Christian life, really the bedrock of the Christian life. James started out this list, submit to God. Now he wraps it up, humble yourselves before God. But then note what happens here. What happens to those who mourn and lament over their sins? What happens to those who submit to God in humility? Those who draw near to God? Those who fulfill all these commands? Well, verse 10 tells us. It's all summed up in humility. What does God do for the humble? Verse 10 says, God will lift you up. If you will bring yourself low in lamenting and weeping and wailing over your sin, God will exalt you. God will give you glory. God will give you joy. God will give you peace. But that you have to understand, that's the pattern of the Christian life. That's the paradox. That's really the paradox at the heart of the gospel. That Jesus, through his cross establishes a kingdom. It doesn't seem like those things can go together, but that's the paradox of it. And that's the paradox at the heart of the Christian life, that those who humble themselves will be exalted, that God will turn our mourning to joy. Those who lower themselves, who humble themselves before God, will be lifted up. Really, in a sense, if I keep going back to Psalm 51, that it's exactly what God does for David in Psalm 51. By the end of that psalm, David has confessed his sin to God. By the end of that psalm, he's so overflowing with joy. Now he's telling the whole congregation about God's goodness and God's grace and God's mercy. This is what God promises to do for us. This is what we must learn. The pathway to glory is through humility. The way to joy is through sorrow. The way to live, the way to really live is to die to yourself. The way to strength, to real strength, is to admit your weakness. The way to forgiveness is confession. The way to eternal treasure is to acknowledge your spiritual bankruptcy before God. And you know what it is that keeps us from experiencing all this? What keeps us from from mourning and lamenting our sin? What keeps us from submitting to God and humbling ourselves before God? It is pride. And that's why James has already quoted from Proverbs to tell us God opposes the proud. It is pride that keeps you from experiencing all God has to offer you. It is pride that keeps you from experiencing the mercy and grace of God in your life. Now, of course, proud people never think of themselves as prideful. In fact, proud people are usually pretty proud of their humility. They don't think of themselves as prideful, but pride with its focus on the self, the sufficiency of the self, the self's desires, the glory of the self. Pride always comes between us and God. And that's why James says, you got to get rid of it. That pride stands between you and God. You've got to get rid of it if you will humble yourself 
God will exalt you. If you will humble yourself, you will experience the grace and the glory and the goodness and the love of God in incredible ways. This is why pride is the enemy of growth in the Christian life. Pride is the enemy of grace. Pride is the enemy of faith and repentance. Pride is the enemy of your soul. Pride is the enemy of your salvation. The proud already have their reward. The proud want the praise of men. That's all they're going to get. But if we will turn from our pride, if we will humble ourselves before God, He will lift us up. He will bring us to glory. He will give us the victory. He will grant us joy unspeakable and the peace that passes understanding. And that is our hope. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.